couple of closing comments from me. On the table is a DVD called Reclaiming Democracy. It's from CELDIF. It's three hours of very engaging, informative talks and Q&As in public spaces that kind of lays this out. If you are somebody or you know folks who aren't going to read stuff, that's a great resource. And you get full public uh, broadcast rights with it. You don't have to spend a fortune to get permission to put it in your local movie theater. Okay, Re reclaiming, re I think it's Reclaiming Democracy, and again, Be the Change, the Little Red Book, is about the community rights movement's development. It's the only published book so far. Um, I will continue to hang out here for some minutes after 9, or I don't know <coughs> what the space is, but I'm also fine with uh, having an official closure and then doing another 15 or 20 minutes of Q&A. Okay, so... Let's, let's go for another 15 or 20 minutes. Let's, allow, let's close properly so that people who need to leave can leave. But please, let's just continue. So if the folks who are done, you're welcome to go. And a few of us will continue. Thank you. So we'll continue with um, comments and questions. Yes. So I wonder if you could I mean, you Can you speak loud? Yeah, I wonder if you could uh, sort of speculate a little bit on why there have been so few suits to like you know, put these laws down. I mean, you did say a little bit before about people being, the corporations being reluctant to sort of show their hand and say, well, we're stronger than you. But do you think that's all of it? Or I think there's a whole variety of reasons, and we actually don't know really what the primary reasons are because they're not going to tell us. But part of it is that these are not easy lawsuits for corporations to bring, and they have no experience still. Right? Corporate, this is a whole new paradigm of law. Nobody's ever said, you know, we dare you to challenge us on our constitutional rights versus your constitutional rights. So they can't do the normal kind of you know, normally they, they say to the judge, well, what we're doing is legal, and we don't see any evidence that it's causing any harm beyond what's legally allowed through regulations. So please, judge, throw this out. And it's thrown out frequently. This is not that. It's not about we have to prove that there's harm in the air and the water, etc. It's about our right to say no. And so their legal arguments are fundamentally different and they have no experience with that. So that's clearly one reason. Another reason that in, mo in many of these cases, they can go somewhere else. That until we get a lot larger, right? Okay, well, we wanted to put the farm, hog farm factory there, but this town's not fighting us, we'll put it there, right? That has to be another significant reason. But as more and more towns pick this stuff up, it's gonna be harder and harder. I mean, you could use these ordinances for anything, right? Like, you could use these ordinances to stop the Keystone XL pipeline at the lo in a local place, right? The pipeline is intended to go through this town or this county. What if that town or county passed one of these ordinances, right? It creates another interesting legal battle. I'm reminded, I mean, there's been, as you say, like other things other things like this, like including uh, like Berkeley, California's... Uh... Can people hear who want to hear? No, can't hear. Come closer if you want to continue in the conversation. Let's fill the front rows. There's a lovely hallway out there if people want to talk and then other people can hear. If people in the back can whisper so we can continue. 
<laughs> okay. Hey, talkers in the back, go in the hallway, we can hear up here. But let's just continue. Okay. Okay. It reminds me of like Berkeley, California, so, you know, like uh, passing a nuclear-free zone um, there, even though they knew that, that like University of which California was symbolic. Is, right. It was a symbolic. It's symbolic. Zone. But uh, right. but right here in Port Townsend, we passed an ordinance a couple of years ago saying that uh, only. Uh, proprietor-owned businesses in the downtown area, that we will not have any uh, large corporations. <coughs> You've passed that as law passed in Port Townsend. Yes. If folks are interested, come into the first few rows, you'll be able to hear. That's, that's great. So um, large corporations, likely if they were really serious about this, could challenge it as a violation of their property rights, I'm guessing. I don't know how it was written, but it wasn't a rights-based law. I can guarantee you that. It wasn't this new paradigm of local ordinance. It, no, it, it, it wasn't. Just, it just designated it's really great. Yeah. So my guess is that if a large corporation challenged it, it would be overruled in, in the courts because it would violate their property rights. And that's why these laws embed in the ordinances we don't recognize state preemption. We don't recognize corporate rights under all these amendments. We don't recognize corporate access to the Commerce Clause and the con Contracts Clause because all of those violate our authority locally to self-govern. Do these ordinances actually explicitly say explicitly that? Explicitly say that. And if you go to seldif.org and you click on ordinances, you will see every ordinance they've written and, where, and what town has passed them. And I really <coughs> urge you to get to take a look at an ordinance. Like, just pick one. They're organized by topic. You're interested in water withdrawal. You're interested in toxics. You're interested in corporate ag. They're all there by topic. Click on one. Print it out. They're four or five pages long, most of them. There isn't a single word in them you won't understand. This is people's law, right? Why would we pass laws for communities that communities don't get, right? You'll, you'll understand every single word in those four or five pages. Uh, they're very exciting, these things to read. So get familiar with the actual laws. Look at the enforcement mechanisms. Normally, enforcement is done by the elected officials who were really not excited about the law being passed anyway, but they were pushed so hard by the locals that they passed it under pressure. And then it's immediately um, violated and now you're begging those same politicians to enforce the law they were really not excited about in the first place, right? That's what we're used to doing as single-issue activists. We don't do that either. We, the citizens have direct enforcement authority in these ordinances. We're in charge. Isn't that called vigilantism? No. <laughs> it's by majority rule, right? They're only passed by a majority of the electeds or a majority of the voters in a majority rule society. Okay, so like a big hog farm actually like moves into the town, buys 1,500 acres and... Fish farm. And, and, and fish farm, yeah. Or, or, or a fish farm. Sure. So, so how does that enforcement work then? Well, believe it or not, you can use these ordinances to push out a company that's already here and already operating, right? You could use the ordinance to get rid of the mill in your town. Now... I actually don't support that because we're using paper, we're using plywood, we're using particle board, right? We're using the stuff that these toxic industrial pro you know, projects create. So we as the people have to figure out, are we going to keep using this stuff? And if we are, 
How do we take control over these industries and either run them democratically or clean them up? Right? right? The question needs to be more, who's in charge of decisions about the mill? Not, it's a toxic mill, let's get rid of it, right? I mean, in yeah. privileged community after privileged community, we don't want toxic industry in our town. But all that does is creates this false division between environmentalists and workers, right? We need living wage jobs in our community. And, and we're losing them all, yeah. right? So the question is, how do the working people in the mill... And the folks who are concerned about the toxics realize that they are we the people and that the corporate, what's the com- name of the company who owns the mill? Port Townsend Paper Corporation. It belongs to a, a couple of hedge funds, actually. It belongs to hedge funds. Yes. Right, so we're, we're, because we don't really understand who we are as the sovereign people, because we don't understand that the, that the hedge fund owners are legitimately our subordinates, we have the wrong working relationship with them, right? We make demands, we plead, we, maybe we consider it a big success if the board comes to us so that we can negotiate, right? A sovereign people does not negotiate with its subordinates. Now, I'm not saying this is reality on the ground yet, but this is the direction that we have to be headed. We are, we the people. We have self-governing authority. So how we get from where we are to there is more a question of decolonization of our minds. It's a question of are we powerful and how are we powerful? And what we've been taught is that we're most powerful as consumers voting with our dollars. I buy, I'm supporting that, I'm boycotting that. Or we're most powerful in single issue activism. And I would say those are both diversions. Our biggest power is that we are the sovereign people. And that we've been so divided and conquered that we don't even know how to talk to people across the political spectrum to realize that we're in charge and those hedge funds have no legitimate authority to govern in our town. Right? Do the workers in the mill want to be working in a cleaner facility? Of course they do. If they didn't lose their jobs, right? If they weren't threatened with job loss, of course they want a cleaner facility. Of, I mean, they're breathing the same air that everybody else is, right? Worse. Actually, more of it. Okay. So again, it's like we have to reframe these issues so that we understand it's, it's not, it, that, that what it is, is we the people versus a legal fiction. That's the problem. And as soon as we understand the legal fiction and its proper relationship to us, everything changes. It's a fundamental paradigm shift that happens in here. I'm not saying this is easy, but 150 communities have made this paradigm shift. Yeah, which is inspiring. Other people, yeah. Have any state governments been challenged, or has this movement gotten to any state government? It seems that there are some basic regulations regarding corporate structure and so on that come out of the state. Has anyone tried to... Change the way states look at corporate structure. So, what I mentioned earlier, just very briefly, and I've been packing this with a lot of information, is that the second phase of our movement is that once you've passed enough of these in a state at the local level or county level, those communities network together and they start taking on state corporate codes and the state constitution, which privilege corporate rights over our rights. So, in Pennsylvania, 
which is the only, com- only state that's gotten really this far, 100 communities. Two years ago, they founded the Pennsylvania Community Rights Network. And I urge folks who are taking notes to write down Pennsylvania Community Rights Network and put it into Google, and you will be just flabbergasted in a really positive way by what comes up. In February of 2010, in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, 26 communities of the 100 that had passed these, I think it was more like 60 or 80 two years ago, put together a cha- what's called the Chambersburg Declaration. Berg is B-U-R-G, Chambersburg Declaration. And 26 communities signed on to it. Um, and you read this thing and you're like, it's socialist, it's Green Party, what is this? No, it's mostly conservative rural farm communities who wrote this. And I urge you all to, to look at the Pennsylvania Community Rights Network's founding Chambersburg Declaration to look at the direction that we're headed in terms of state-level organizing. This is very powerful stuff. I mean, it, it would take me five minutes, ten minutes to read it, which I don't want to take. But, I mean, let me just read you a couple of lines from it. <clears throat> Most reformers and activists have not focused on replacing the current system of elite decision-making with a democratic one, but have concentrated merely on lobbying the factions in power to make better decisions. It's fascinating. It's about who's in charge, folks. Right? That's the issue. In our communities, who's in charge here? And we're not contesting that. And we haven't been for a century. Right? Our labor movements don't contest for power. Pre-regulatory law, working people who were mobilizing for power, not for wages and working conditions. They were mobilizing around what are we going to produce and how are we going to produce it. That's not even on the table anymore. Labor unions are banned from having those discussions in labor negotiations because those discussions violate corporate property rights. They conceded all of that power away in the early 20th century. Environmental groups don't contest for, for real control of you know, real environmental protection either. Environmental law sees nature as property, believe it or not. If you actually look at the construction of these laws, it's property. That's all it is. Rural farm communities in Pennsylvania, Republican farmers, one community after another, have included rights of nature language in their local ordinances because they understand that under nature as property constructs, only people with legal standing can protect nature locally. And legal standing in, in property, in nature as property means you live next door or you have an economic interest in that property. They don't want that either. They're stepping completely outside of that legal structure and they're saying, we all have standing. We're all local. We all care about and need the health of the environment around us. And so they've fundamentally re- reconstruct, restructured what, nature, what laws about nature are about. And believe it or not, this has now jumped from Pennsylvania Republican communities to the National Constitution of Ecuador. It jumped in that direction a few years ago. The, popu- the, 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 the national government of Ecuador pulled in Seldeth, and Pennsylvania farmers 
in Ecuador to consult on their new constitution. And there's now clauses in their new constitution recognizing rights of nature. And there's now an international rights of nature network that's been established. This is, again, a fundamental transformation of law around nature. Lawrence? How did the... Who was the organizer or organizers that went to Pennsylvania? And and this kind of meeting, this kind of educational stuff? Were you there? there No, it was... Seldiff is really the star of this. A public interest environmental law firm that had done five or ten years of pro bono work completely inside the box of regulatory law. And as the farmers were asking, why is it that we have no authority to say no in Wells Township, a group they'd already worked with for three years, what they did was they dug deeper into law that wasn't ever considered relevant because there's all of these you know, statutes and whatever they're called. Um, starts with a P, I can't remember. You know, precedents, legal precedents. That, made, that they thought made it irrelevant. And they pulled from Nebraska and South Dakota, which in the previous decade had both passed state constitutional amendments through the ballot box that banned all non-family-owned corporate farms in those two states, which are, by the way, still holding in those two states. They were both challenged, and state Supreme Courts upheld both, and, no, and it hasn't gone any further. And so they took that concept and they turned it into a local ordinance for these farmers. They had no experience with this at all. So it started just as bans of non-corporate ag. And as their understanding deepened of what it is in legal structures that, that assume that corporations can do this regardless of what we want, they started adding that deeper legal understanding into the ordinances. So the ordinances say, well, I mean, I'll, I'll read you I'll just read you one paragraph from the Benton County. I pulled it up. Do I have it? Here it is. Here's, here's one paragraph from Benton County's brand new ordinance. Um, Section 5, prohibitions to secure the Bill of Rights and elevate community rights above corporate powers. Corporations engaged in activities prohibited by this ordinance or seeking to engage in activities that would violate the prohibitions of the ordinance shall not have the rights of persons nor access to legal protections afforded to persons by the U.S. and Oregon constitutions, nor shall those corporations be afforded rights under the 1st, 5th, or 11th amendments to the U.S. Constitution, nor shall those corporations be afforded the protections of the commerce or contract clauses within the U.S. Constitution. I mean, these are serious, right? This just got launched. This just went public this week. I don't know if it's on the CELDA site yet. But, but I, actually, I'll make a point of including that in the email, um, the Benton County Ordinance. It's seven pages long. Um, it's amazing. It protects, the her- it protects seed heritage and bans GMO agriculture across the county. Mm-hmm. Now we'll see, again, I mean, Monsanto owns Benton County, right? Oregon State University in Corvallis is an ag school. Monsanto owns OSU. I don't mean literally. I mean that they have enormous economic and political control over what happens at OSU, right? So what happens when all of that becomes illegal? 
as it will under this ordinance, right? All the powers that be are going to be are going to pull out to try to stop it. But it's a different kind of battle at that point. It's about rights, not about GMO ag. We're not arguing anymore about whether GMO. We're not arguing with their with the fake opposition, right? The the you know yeah. our grassroots groups and their astroturf organizations, right? That's what they're called: fake grassroots corporate front groups, right? The climate change debate only exists as a debate because they're astroturf corporate front group fake groups claiming that climate change is not a problem. That's the only reason there's a debate. We've had absolute unity across science for five or ten years already on this. There's no debate about whether GMOs are safe. That's not. There's no independent non-corporate scientists claiming that GMO agriculture is safe. It's an unproven technology. The problem is that Monsanto runs the USDA. I mean, literally, Monsanto executives have been the directors of the USDA for, I think, four presidents now. Right? It's their institution. We're not interested in debating the safety of GMOs. We're saying no. The debate's over. We, the people, say no. I mean, this is really different stuff. Yes. Yeah, the right. The state right. supreme court overturned Montana's um, elections laws. Oh, sure. The supreme court goes against what we're trying to do all the time. It's kind of the final. It's the final defense that the one percent or the ten percent always have, right? If we manage to get something through the House of Representatives, which these days is near impossible, it's overruled by the Senate, right? Our House of Lords or vetoed by the president. If somehow we manage to get through all of that, the Supreme Court overrules it as unconstitutional. I mean, it, it, it's, this is just one more example of, and, and if you actually read, it's interesting, like all of the coverage of the Montana, the historic century-old Montana um, elections, I forget what it's called, the law that, that this is about, if you actually go online and you read the law that was overruled, it doesn't ban corporate money. I thought it did. I read it. What it does is just like what Citizens United does. It makes corporate money more anonymous. It's really more about reporting than around bans. Yeah, it's very interesting. Just like Citizens United is being described as this, you know, game change, this huge game changer, right? And a lot of the groups that are challenging it are calling it the opening of the floodgates of corporate money into our elections. I mean, anybody who's 30, 25, 30 years old or older knows that's not true, right? We've had corporate money flooding into our elections since 1976. That's when the floodgates opened of corporate money. Citizens United weakened reporting requirements, allowed more anonymity, allows corporate money to flow directly out of the general fund instead of out of their PACs. It doesn't open the floodgates to corporate money. It's badly misreported. Citizen, I call Citizens United the candle on the icing of the cake of corporate First Amendment rights. <laughs> That's what it is. And there'll be another candle and another candle and another candle until we understand this 200-year history that just keeps getting worse. 
It seems like this approach that you've been talking about tonight uh, is very interesting, and I see it as a long-term solution. By long-term, it takes years and timeline to get this in a place. And I'm new to this community. I've uh, been here less than a year. And, and actually, this whole concept of the paper company is it's just a matter of weeks old to me because mm -hmm. I just learned about it. You just it. got here. But it seems that we've got a problem that's imminent. Uh, we've got a re-permitting uh, application in process. We've got laws on the, uh, on the books. These are state statutes that current, uh, the current permits do not uh, uphold. And we have local uh, government officials, county commissioners, board members of health department, and so forth, who are uh, not particularly interested in in uh, I guess standing up for the for the populace and right. in, in enforcing the state statutes. So it seems like to me we've got a problem that needs to be addressed in a matter of days, not years. And I was hoping I'd hear something tonight that says here's what we can do in a short term to get some action going here. This, this, yeah, this work is complex enough that I don't even attempt to address specific local urgent issues because it's going to take you six months to a year to a year and a half to get yourself revved up, picking an ordinance and campaigning on it. Six then, to eighteen months. Is right, and that's what, and that's why single issue activist culture. That's what single issue activist culture always says, right? I mean, I've been doing political organizing work for 33 years now. And for 33 years, what I've been told is, we can't do this legal structure change stuff because we have an emergency now. And if at any points along the way, enough people had said the important stuff is the structure change stuff, right? I mean, five years ago, Seldiff came to this town and they led a two-day training. Is anybody there? Okay. So there were 15 or 20 people, presumably. That's usually what happened what, right at this training. And they laid out what I'm describing in much greater detail than I laid it out tonight. It's a day and a half long training, five years ago. Nothing of this sort of organizing came out of that training. So the, if, if, if there had been something five years ago, you'll, you would be in a completely different situation right now with your mill. Right? If, you had, if that group had taken what they learned and started organizing around it, deepening their understanding of it politically and legally, and mobilizing in this reframed way, you'd be in a different situation now. Didn't happen. I don't know why. You know, a few of you who are here might want to speak to that. This is not easy stuff to organize, but at any point, things get worse and worse and worse. Right? And for all the decades I've been doing local organizing, what you said is what I mostly hear. I mean, you're a newcomer, right? Even from people who've been here decades in communities where I do outreach, what I almost always hear is we don't have time to do this. Well, I heard it. I, I, right? We don't have time not to do this. I saw a little stirring of this. Anybody want to respond to that? <clears throat> do you, how do you uh, convince your elected officials to not be afraid of... Lawsuits? It's hard. It's very hard. You have to have elected officials with backbone. And what's interesting in, is, in my experience, not my direct experience, but watching Seldiff's experience, because they're working, 
They're constantly in direct phone and visit contact with elected officials and their city attorneys. And consistently, as soon as the city or county attorney tells the elected officials, this is illegal, we'll be sued, it's over. Right? And so what you need is elected officials with backbone who understand that their primary responsibility is the health and welfare of the people of their town that elected them no matter what. And that's rare. But interestingly, these conservative rural communities, for whatever reason, if maybe it's because they're rural and maybe it's because they're conservative. I don't know. Or maybe they're completely, you know, East Coast communities are very non-transient, right, compared to West Coast communities. Maybe everybody is so tightly knit that they're willing to stand together and that they trust each other more. I don't know. But in general, liberal elected officials have not had backbone so far. You have someone with backbone? Yeah. Right. See, that's not a political risk for them. That's a resolution. That's non-binding. It's no political risk at all. They won't be sued passing a non-binding resolution. They will be sued potentially passing a law. If you want to, you need to just come in if you're going to, because you can barely be heard and be, and be brief. We take an issue to some Congress people like, uh, and, uh, that, that are in the uh, in Congress people that we sent to Olympia for Washington State. And one of them recently told us, oh, we're so busy dealing with important issues, you know, like the environment and everything. We don't want to pass a non-binding resolution. We don't have time to do that. It's the same kind of thing like you were talking uh, that's about. That's why I'm urging folks who are active in Move to Amend. I love that Move to Amend all over the country is passing resolutions that are about corporate personhood. That's great. But don't end there. Don't then go from there to waiting five or ten years for the federal government to do the right thing. I think that's profoundly naive politically. Go from there to passing a rights-based ordinance in your community. You have now mobilized Port Townsend. You got the city council to pass it, right? You got hundreds or thousands or whatever people to be engaged in the conversation, to sign it on, on write a, a petition, whatever. Right. There's your mailing list. They're already awake now about corporate personhood rights. Great. Go from non-binding resolution to something with teeth. Mm-hmm. Start organizing. We also have the it's, the, it's the perfect, appropriate next step. And go from there to hoping for a constitutional amendment. But don't now just wait. Because nobody was politically threatened by passing that resolution. Sure. Nobody will be sued. We're talking about taking our power back. And that's not what resolutions do. Even when the state passes a resolution, that's Same thing. Non-binding. Totally non-binding. 